Today, we present to you an episode in two parts. This is part one. Hello. Hello, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. You came in strong with some heavy uh, proximity effect there. See, that's what happens unless I go way far away from the mic. It's no, like a super no, no, no. thing. Uh-huh. Is that right? And try it again. It'll do the no, same thing no, every no. time. No, I love it. The thing is, I love it. Come, you know, <laughs> it's just, like super just... distorted. I've listened to it because <laughs> Merlin Merlin records both sides of it. He records my side and his side, which is the same thing that I'm doing now. Yeah. And whenever I listen to what he sends me, it's always super loud, distorted. Like hello, how are you? and I don't yeah. know why it doesn't. I don't know why it doesn't. You know, Skype is a bad program for this that we use it. <laughs> I for. know it is. I know. And uh, we all use it all the time, and it's just—it's not—it's uh, not really made for it. And I don't know what what can be done. You know what I mean? I do know everything's what you in, mean. Everything's in beta, Dan. Everything is in beta all the time. Mm-hmm. The, nothing is ever like good to go. It's all—it's all still testing, mm-hmm. just testing, just testing it for yep. that big day when things are going to go live. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whoo! So how are oh. you? Well, oh boy, tell you what, am I right? Yeah. I woke up this morning to the sound of, um, there's, there's this strange leak in my roof that only happens, uh, when it really, 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 really rains hard for a long time. And I thought I had fixed it. I had, you know, I had, uh, I had Sam out here working on the house all summer. And I told him about it, and I was like, there's a problem up there. you got to go get that thing on the roof. And he came down and said, oh, yeah, I dealt with it. It's fine now. You'll never have that problem again. But, you know, Sam was up on the roof and did not. Should I, I know who Sam is? Sam was a guy that was helping me around the house over the summer. All right. Uh, and he, but he's, you know, he's a handyman who told me he did something up on the top of the roof. Okay. And at the time, like he did something good or bad, well, like made a mess, like poop, poopy time or something up there that he fixed the hole that I told him to fix. Oh, okay. Cause like if one of my kids said I, I did something in the other room, you know, I'm going to worry. Well, he's not a child though. No. And this was in response to me saying, will you go up on the roof and okay. fix this hole? Because he was up there anyway. He was doing other things. Right. Yeah, he, was, he was up there anyway. Why not have him fix the hole? That's right. Because he's doing other work on the roof. Flashing, various flashings and whatnot. But I did not, partly because I had other things to do and I was hiring someone to do the work. And partly because you don't want to follow a handyman around and check on him constantly. That seems like a little rude. Um, professional courtesy suggests that you say if someone tells you that they did something you go oh great all right i did not climb up the ladder and then climb up on the climb up on the eve and whatnot and get up to the top and let make him show me what he'd done but it was the middle of the summer when he was doing this work well now it's the winter and the rain is there's this there's this drip that comes in and it's it's one of those classic cartoon drips that makes a person insane it's like blip and then you look around and you wait for it and it doesn't come and this is you it's not in your house it's sort of in the from the roof to the floor of the attic or something 
No, it's coming into. Oh, it's it is coming through the attic into my room. And so anyway, I woke up to that. I knew where the leak was coming from, so I went and got my little um, my little plastic pail and I put it there. And you know that, of course, makes a very pleasing sound. The little blip into the plastic pail. But it it makes me sad that uh, that Psalm did not actually do the work that he said that he was going to do. But also, I think through that same hole, I now have bats living in the attic. Really? And I've I've been trying to. I didn't know you guys had bats. Oh yeah, we have bats. There are bats everywhere. Uh, I've been trying to like varmint proof my house for 10 years and I've got it varmint proofed in so many different ways. No more possums, no more rats, Mm -hmm. no more all these, there's no cats living under the house. Like I've got it all sealed up except now I have bats in the attic and I think the bats are probably getting in through the same hole because when I hear the bats come in in the morning when they're done with their shift I hear them come in via the chimney area, but they're not in the chimney because then they they walk across the roof on their little bat feet and <laughs> have and then you have know, you ever have seen their, bats walk? Yeah, they're hilarious. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but they get in there and then they walk over to where they sleep and. They do a little bit of chitter chatter with each other, and I'm like, "Oh my god, you're kidding me! Bats, really? Now bats of every after everything, because the thing is, it's illegal to kill a bat, mm-hmm. or to even, I think it's illegal for a civilian to even trap a bat. Uh, you have to hire special bat whisperers mm-hmm. to entice the bats to install little one way doors." And there are lots and lots of things on Amazon that are like, oh, no, all you have to do is buy this little hypersonic beeper box and it'll make the bats disoriented and they won't come around. And then there are always five reviews that are like, that's baloney. This doesn't work. So so now I lay in bed at night and now I have two things to think about this. this because we're, we've entered the rainy season here, you know. It's going to rain here for for a couple of months now. This is our monsoon season. Okay. So I'm thinking about these bats. I'm thinking about this, this uh, drip, drip, drip. Homeownership. Yeah. So what are you? I mean, what are you going to do about the bats? Well, when I told my mom about the bats, she said, "Oh, well, having bats in the attic is great." I was going to say, wouldn't they eat insects and things that you want them to eat? That's what she said. And I said, having bats around is great, but having bats depositing guano in the ceiling Mm. is not great. And they pee too, don't they? Yeah, of course they pee. I mean, they're just big. They're flying rats or flying mice. I don't want rats and mice. I especially don't want them to fly. Yeah. In the house, right? I mean, like in the neighborhood, when I see bats out on the hoof, I'm psyched about it. Mm-hmm. I love seeing bats in the air. That's one of Austin's great uh, natural resources. 
bat bridge. But yeah, and then my mom starts telling me all these stories like, oh, there was this one time that there was this house and the chimney had kind of separated from the house. And if you looked in there, it was like shingled with bats. Oh, see, I don't I, I've seen the bats on the big bat bridge here and that's really cool. But yeah, I don't want them like nesting and roosting in in my chimney or something. No, no, not at all. That's not what you want. No bats in there. No. So, but then you go and you're like, well, how do I get one of these bat whispers? And absolutely, of course, I don't know. Dan, have you ever known any people personally who became sex therapists? No, I haven't. Well, it's one of the curiosities of the mental health field. Wait, this connects to bats. How are we just done with bats or moving on to the next? No, no, no. We're going to get to bats. Okay. All right. This, uh, this all ties in. One of the curiosities about the mental health field that I discovered pretty early on was that people who, in my experience, friends of mine who decided that they were going to be uh, sex therapists in particular, who were going to go to college and study psychology Mm -hmm. in order to work as a sex therapist, that those people were the one, were the ones that I knew who were the most, um, that they were the most pervert, perverted, perverted, like like into weird fun stuff or perverted, like, uh, something wrong with them. Well, both. I mean, the, um, you know, one of the people that I knew that went into sex, decided they were going to be a sex therapist was one of the kids that was sleeping with one of our teachers in high school. Yeah. Okay. And you know, it was like, I tied that together pretty early every, and then in college too, the, people that were like, I'm going to become a sex therapist. I was like, Oh right. And you're also like the, the one that's, that's, <laughs> that troubles me. <laughs> and then as time went on in the mental health fields, I found that people that became psychiatrists were also kind of like you would think the ones that had really bad relationships with their parents mm-hmm. Had become and had a lot of anger issues and had dealt with them by becoming very formal and 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 as time went on, I started to extend that that idea the 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 sex therapist notion to almost all jobs that people find an affinity for the thing, not that they're the best at, but for the thing that that scratches the the thing about them that is the most um, like torqued. And that's why I have such a high, high opinion of computer scientists. Yes. Uh, computer maths. But in my experience, bat ichthyologists. Is that, are bat scientists ichthyologists? I don't. I don't, I don't think I don't, so. I don't think so either. What is a, a bat scientist is a, uh, no. Because an ichthyologist is, I thought, was fish. It is fish, yeah. So a bat, a bat Uh, is a whole, that's a bat's a rodent. I understand that a bat is not a fish. Right. But but I do tune into this program for for that kind of, like, (laughs) deep lesson. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's see. I'm going (laughs) to... I see where you're saying bad scientist is what I feel like you're saying is a 
Chiopterologist. Chiopterologist. A chiopterologist is a bat scientist. And I have met a few. In fact, we played a show one time in the How South. How do you spell that? Is that with a C or a K? A, a CH, like, like a chiropractor, but a chiopterologist. And a, a, chiopter, a chiopterologist came up to me after a show that we played in Georgia one time and said, uh, hey, I really love the long winters. I play your music for my students <laughs> while we dissect bats. <laughs> and I was like, you're a bat scientist. And the person said, I am. I, uh, I'm like one of the preeminent bat scientists in the, in this, in the, in the southern United States. And I was like, I absolutely believe it. Yeah. And, you know, the long winters, for whatever reason, attracted weird scientists across all disciplines. You know, we were always talking to fans that were also like university librarians or, uh, or up some tributary of the river of biology that was so far up in the mountains. I didn't even understand what they were doing. And I loved that. And I don't understand why that's true. There's, I don't listen to long winter's music and think that there's something about it that is like a scientist attractant. <laughs> you ha- you bat- do have a lot of scientist listeners. Yeah. More, I think than, than anyone else. Yeah. Well, maybe not more than Neil deGrasse Tyson, although maybe scientists. No, can't stand see, I'm going to, I, I, I think that's accurate. I don't think any scientist ever wants to listen to him because he's, he doesn't speak to them the way I think someone like you does because scientists I think are drawn to you because uh, you're driven by uh, emotion to create art. And this is elusive to the scientist. The scientist wants to understand this. Whereas Neil deGrasse Tyson, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know his whole thing. It's old hat to them. That's a, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. Uh, But bat, bat people, are nuts and you can and you can understand it right that that to to experience bats as a person and say that's what i want to do i want to know more about those bats Mm -hmm. is is just like it it doesn't it doesn't need any further explication it is batty (laughs) and so every bat person I've ever met, I have found totally fascinating. And if you are a bat person who doesn't become someone who goes to like universities and and pokes bats with chopsticks, mm-hmm. but instead are, are a bat person that climbs up on a ladder and goes into attics to like get right in there with the bats. And you're not a spelunker either. It's not like you're a bat person in some moldy cave. It's like you're in someone's hot attic. Um, you're a kook and all the websites of people that are like, let me come get the bats out of your house. They're all, I just, I mean, as soon as I got onto this, of course I read like 14 of these people's sort of bios. Like, tell me more about your, your story (laughs) as you became a bat rancher. And they're all, they have very strong opinions about how you should do things. And, and, uh, a lot of them are like, I only work at night. And it's not because I like working at night. It's because the bat works at night. It's like, all right. Mm. Okay. Okay, Batman. Uh, 
so that's in my future. I don't want to have to call three of these kooks and get them out here with their flashlights telling me that it's going to cost me a bunch of money. But I do kind of want to get them out here and just like experience their their wild world for a little bit. Yeah. You know, step in, step into it. Just put a toe in. Yeah. Just a glimpse, you know, because these, these bad people are not going to be living in the city either. When you hire handy people in Seattle, at least they live on the outskirts of town. And it's not just because it's expensive to live in Seattle. You know, that, that whole thing about Seattle being so expensive that, normal people can't live in the city anymore. That's a fairly recent phenomenon. But wildlife management people, critter getters and and uh and the like, they live out. They all live out in the in the outskirts. And I think it's because most of them have like 15 raccoons in in <laughs> dog cages. Yeah. So, anyway, I I both look forward to it and I dread it like so many things. Now you were telling me yesterday that you were, but wait, how uh, does this get back to the sex therapy people? Just that they're weird. Well, I'm just they're saying that it's uh, it's like the way pet owners end up looking like their pets or pets end up looking like pet owners. There's a kind of affinity and that affinity, um, that affinity is like uh, reflective or, I mean, it's um, you start to see that a bat chaser also looks like a bat and thinks like a bat. And a sex therapist is, is generally someone who really, really needs to go see a sex therapist. And in my case, I don't know, maybe, maybe what I need to do is listen to podcasts mm, to become, last, to like look <laughs> like a podcaster. That's the last thing I would ever want to do. Yeah. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooklinen. This is a bedding company. They make really, really great sheets. You know what? You spend a third of your life in your sheets. You should make it count. It's time to switch out of the uh, bed in a bag set that you got probably 10 years ago. And uh, you know what? You're going to sleep better with better sheets. You know why? Because it feels better. You get in bed. You're like, these feel really good. Brooklinen makes sheets that feel really good. They're high quality sheets and bedding without the luxury retail prices or the overwhelming big box store shopping experience. You're going to sleep on great sheets. It's an easy way to upgrade your nightly routine. You're going to feel more well-rested when you get better sleep. The problem is most high-end quality bedding, it's marked up by more than like 300% by the time that it reaches the store. And that's that's not very fair to us, the consumers. Well, Brooklinen makes quality luxury sheets and bedding for everyone. They were the winner of the best of online bedding category by Good Housekeeping. Uh, their all-season down comforter was rated the number one best comforter by the New York Times Wirecutter blog. I mean, this is luxury bedding underpriced. You've got to try these sheets out today. I love mine. I, I just put a fresh set on just the other day. They're great. I'm not kidding. They're really great. And they have an exclusive offer just for our listeners of this fantastic program. You're going to get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK, one word, at brooklinen. That's spelled B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. 
and they're so confident you're going to love your new sheets, they offer you a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give them a try. And the only way that you're going to get 20 bucks off and free shipping is to use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. Best sheets ever. Uh, you said you were going to San Francisco. Yeah, I'm going there um, to give a, a talk, uh, which is about, um, I guess it's going to be about like bootstrapping a business kind of thing. I'm giving a talk at a place called Doximity where some of my friends work and they wanted to bring me out and I'm doing that. I think I think it's on the 23rd of January 2018 for the future listeners. Uh, oh, nice. So anyone who's in San Francisco and wants to hear me talk about things I've done wrong, it's I think it's free. I think you just show up and I'll be tweeting about it. I'll even put a link to it in the, how about that? I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Show notes for this episode are going to be at five by five dot TV slash roadwork slash 95. And if you're in San Francisco, you can do that. Now I know you guys are doing the sketch fest thing in just a few days, right? Like next, not even a week, right? Yeah. It starts. I fly down there on Saturday to sketch fest for those uh, listeners not familiar. It is a uh, month long program in San Francisco where, I think it started, as the name suggests, as a like sketch comedy festival, but it expanded to include all media. Um, it's a thing where the cast of a long defunct TV show will get together and do a Q&A or people will will read the script to an old all in the family episode, but all in British accents ah. or, you know, like it's just a, it's fun, a wild, funny, and, fun stuff. Yeah. And they, and the, typically the idea is that they put a bunch of people in San Francisco all at the same time and then kind of throw them together in a madcap fashion to do different shows. And so you're doing at least two there, right? You're doing uh, Roderick on the line with Merlin and then you're doing omnibus with Ken Jennings. Well, I have never done a sketch fest where I haven't ended up doing seven <laughs> shows because it's in the nature of the thing, right? They're just like, well, well, you're going to be standing around. Why don't you go do this? And, and and I'm still waiting for another last minute text from them where they're like, will you go on Steve Eggie's show and and pretend to be a professional wrestler? But right now I'm doing uh, Omnibus. On Saturday night, I'm doing Roderick on the line on Tuesday night. I'm doing um, a double header of um, oh, and in the, and I'm doing Jonathan Colton's show with Paul and Storm some one of those nights, and then I'm doing um, a double header of uh, Greatest Generation, the Star Trek podcast, and then my brand new podcast, Friendly Fire where I uh, watch war movies with the guys from Greatest Gen, and we talk about them. Now, has that show come out yet? Is that out? That show debuts tomorrow. Okay. Uh, with the first episode, Saving Private Ryan. Perfect. I mean, what, a great, what a great movie to start with. It's a great movie to start with. I'm, we're, we're working hard to make sure that the audience of this show is not entirely dudes- it's an uphill battle. Yeah, because uh, it like war movies, that's not that's maybe number 
two after Westerns, maybe? Or maybe they're both vying, they're tied for first spot in, in um, movies that the female people I know don't ever want to watch. The thing about a Western, typically, is there are women in Western yes, films. Yes, there can um, be. Usually and, they're, they're being beaten up, though. Yeah, there's a there are a lot, but there's there's also there are female archetypes that are in westerns. You know the the noble prostitute and the the um, the wise bar matron, right? Uh, the madam. You have a hotel. madam sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and then you have the the plucky farm wife who whose husband is killed. Right. He's killed and she's maintaining the homestead and she's, she's got the double barrel shotgun and the the shooter, six shooter on her hip. So it may not be, you know, uh, the, those, and, and as, as Westerns, as we went into the, the nineties and the progressive Western era, um, starting with unforgiven, uh, you started to see like, uh, that story, modernized i mean there is still a western is a little bit of a hard sell if you're gonna be talking about like super strong female protagonists yeah but there but there is like there are there are a lot of social uh stories played out in the in a western context but in a lot of war movies you will not see a single woman from start to finish right sure it's just like that here we are in iwo jima and then two hours later, you're still on Iwo Jima and, you know, you don't even see, you don't even see a nurse. Um, and so it is, it is like troubling, uh, from the standpoint of, of the, of the idea of representation, uh, your, 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 not just your classic war movie, but like war movies of all stripes. They're not especially, um, they're not broadly representative because I, for a lot of, for a very long time, armies weren't broadly representative and wars were not. Mm-hmm. They were, um, they are this very kind of particular violent expression of a, of a pretty narrow version of male identity. And, and so we talk about war movies and very, very definitely talk about them in a contemporary context but we also have to accept them in their own language and in their own time and and we reflect on that but it's also we're talking about war movies right and and the thing is there it turns out there are actually quite a few war movies that break that model a little bit we've watched a couple recently because we're we've been building up a little bit of a backlog back catalog uh, we watched Africa Queen with uh, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, which is only nominally a war movie, but it's set within the context of World War One, And, you know, it's kind of a romantic comedy, a 1950 style romantic comedy. Hmm. Uh, and an, an unusual one, but like, so, <clears throat> and From Here to Eternity, for, for example, is like a classic war movie, but the only fighting the fighting only happens in the last three minutes of the film. The whole movie is about the relationships of the, these two couples. So suffice to say, we are trying to make an, and it's an interesting history program, but yeah, I don't expect that it's going to 
I, I mean, it's it's got a little bit of work to do to attract a broad audience. Uh, I think the initial audience is going to be a bunch of people that want to argue with my take on the Battle of the Bulge. Right. Which is great. Send e- send all emails. You to want that. Adam Pranica at <laughs> gmail.com. You know, I mean, so I, I'm, ex- I'm excited about that. If you think about, I mean, war movies, look at Dunkirk and how well that movie did. I haven't seen it. Uh, but that's proof, all the proof you need to see that war movies, war TV shows, video games about war. These are, these are very, very interesting to people. And by people, I mean, guys, dudes. Well, I mean, I don't want to be reductive. I think there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of women who love war movies and I think there are probably a lot of women listening to this show who who play the the war games too. Yeah. I love war movies, but it, it, it does stand out as we talk about representation so much in our culture that this is a genre of media that is, that it's a lot harder to, um, you can't just reboot the world war two film and make all the protagonists female. Right. Uh, right. Like you can ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to find a, you can find ways of telling women's stories in, uh, in a war movie context, but it's a, it's a, it's a very different story. It doesn't have the same, like let's carve, you know, stars of David's and Hitler's forehead or whatever kind of, um, like masturbatory violent fantasy, Mm -hmm. violence fantasy that war movies are so uh, that reboots of things, you know, I mean, I think Ben Affleck did that Pearl Harbor movie where he rebooted, world war two and turned it into like a star vehicle Mm -hmm. with a lot of kissing. I've never seen that movie. I can only imagine that it's a total abortion, but I'm sure it's going to come up in my new war movie podcast, friendly fire. (laughs) Uh, but it's, you know, it's, um, there will be plenty of, of lady listeners as we call them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I wonder about this show. I know that there are a lot of women that listen to this show. I think it's mostly women. Well, one could only hope. I don't think it is mostly women, though. I don't hear from women that much. The silent majority. That's what the term was invented for. Is that what the term Listeners was invented for? Listeners of this show. The female <laughs> listeners of this show. But I do, you know, I do hope that it's more... When I look at the dem- my demographics of, like, my um, Twitter followers... It's, you know, it's 65-35 or, or 68-32 men to women. And I wonder whether that is, whether that reflects my content um, or interest in my content or whether it's just something native to the, to the platform mm-hmm. um, where they're just, they're just going to be a lot more. 29 year old guys who are interested in the way that I see the world, then there are going to be, um, 29 year old women that are, or maybe it, yeah, I think maybe it's just that that's just how the, the cookie crumbles. But I try really hard to, I want, I want that to be more even 
on Facebook at a certain, you know, I hit like whatever the 5,000 friend limit, um, several years ago. And what happens when you have 5,000 friends on Facebook is that every day or two, one of them will go away. And I didn't realize that people managed their Facebook accounts so diligently, right? Like every day or so, somebody unfriends me on Facebook and goes, and I go from 5,000 to 4999. <laughs> and now I have a slot. Right. You know? Right. You can bring I the next person in. And I have this, this backlog of people that have friend requested me, some of them from a long, long time ago that I just have, you know, it's Facebook's, uh, uh, whatever their interactivity is really poor. Right. I don't have to say that. Everybody knows. So if I wanted to go back and add the first person who had friend requested me, like all the way back when I first got first hit a limit, because I just said yes to everyone uh, in the early days because I didn't know what Facebook was. I didn't. Right. I was just like, okay, whatever. It's like no, Friendster. I did the same exact thing. Yeah. So there, are, but over time, I think a lot of if I go look at who's friends who I'm friends with on Facebook, like I feel like I know most of the people and it's not, it's not that far fetched to say like I can recognize 5,000 people. Like I, I know who everybody is more or less like, Oh, that's that guy that worked at that publicist, that type of thing. But so every, if I don't go to my Facebook page for a few weeks, when I go back, it's like, oh, now you have 4,992 followers or friends. Right, friends. And then it's like, oh, I've got all these slots to fill. And when I go into the backlog of people, I have for the last two years maybe only clicked, only added uh, women and in particular like women of color. Because it's like, fuck it. Why not? This is the, this is our social experiment now. Like let's, there are plenty of dudes in my friend list, plenty of just like random dudes from St. Louis. Like if there's, you know, if there's a, a woman that's interested enough to friend me on Facebook, like, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's see what what that's like. If, if I, if I keep doing that for long enough, I'll start, I think seeing different stuff come up in my feed when I go on there or start to have a different timber to the comments on my posts or, right. you know, this sure. kind of thing. Like <clears throat> it, maybe my own Facebook page will change culturally in a way that will be noticeable to me. Uh, but because Facebook is running their own algorithms, it's always some, I mean, when I log on, it's always some fucking dingling with some bullshit and I <laughs> log immediately off. <laughs> so, yeah. so it hasn't taken effect yet that I, that my, that my Facebook environment has become, uh, like measurably different, <clears throat> but I would love to hear from, um, from the women that listen to the show. And, and understand like whether they feel like they're, uh, 
sort of in a secret minority that listens that's like, you know, I must be the only woman that's listening to this show, but I like it or whether they feel like they're in a, in a silent majority, a, a sisterhood that's operating, um, at, at a higher wavelength or whether, whether they listen to the show just because they want to get insight into just one more example of how navel gazing a certain kind of, of, uh, <clears throat> I don't think over sensitive middle aged man can be. No, I don't think that's what it is at all. I think I think the women who are listening to this show, it's because of our combined appeal for one thing. But I also think that this is the the best insight into the male psyche available to anyone, male or female, or otherwise. It happens right here. <laughs> right here. Yes. The male psyche. Yeah. Is such a weird. Aminal. I encounter men quite a bit. Yeah, in my, they're everywhere. In my life, everywhere they really you go, are. they're there. They're already there, looking and walking around, looking around. Yeah, I see them, and they want to talk. They've got ideas about stuff, and I have always felt estranged, somewhat from the male psyche. Much more interested in, and feel much more affinity for the way women think than the way men think. And that's not without it has it's not that that hasn't caused a lot of problems for me in life, but i don't I don't entirely understand like and I'm talking about the the um the male psyche like in the mean, I don't understand what's going on in there a lot of the time. I don't find it to be an especially self reflective environment, and it doesn't interest me very much most of the time like what men think about stuff because I don't think that it's what men uh, even if you ask them would would say they especially excelled at thinking about stuff some some certainly but you know most of them are out trying to do stuff yeah it's like oh god out doing stuff fine go do it then Go get her done or whatever it is that you <laughs> whatever your religion is, go like knock it out of the park, fellas. But I kind of want to just like spit, spitball, throw some stuff, you know, throw some ideas around. And so traditionally my friends, my closest friends were always girls. Yeah, I mean All for me for me I remember that to, for the most I mean I had I had two good male friends, but I also had a number of female friends that were, you know, like you felt like you could maybe have a conversation with them that the, the dudes wouldn't want to have. Well, yeah, but also like my first friend when I was two was my first best friend was a girl and my best friend from then on was always a girl and it was, and they were, you know, it's, there are lots and lots of women that you meet in the world who are like, yeah, I kind of just get along with guys better. Like that's a fairly familiar sort of female type. I don't really have a lot of female friends. They say I get along with guys a lot better. Mm -hmm. You don't hear a lot of guys say the same thing. Um, although I think it's true. I think there are a lot of 
guys that get along with women much better. It's just I think most of the time those guys have an easier time of just sort of pairing off with somebody. Like their girlfriend becomes their girlfriend and then wife becomes their best friend and the person that they um the person in the world they're closest to. It's a lot it's a lot harder to be um I think just like a I don't know, a f- uh, like a single fellow who just prefers female company and isn't isn't necessarily sexually pursuing them. Right. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, and it's not, I, I just sit around, right? I mean, it's not like I'm out on the, on the prowl, but throughout, throughout my life, I've always had at least one close female friend that was not my girlfriend. That was just my, like my partner in crime, my my pal. And, uh, and until probably I was fully grown, those girls didn't want to be my boy or what didn't want me to be their boyfriend either. You know, they were, I think we ended up sometimes feeling like, Oh, I guess we're boyfriend and girlfriend, but it wasn't, there wasn't that charge to it. It was much more like, let's go build a treehouse kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I feel like that's how civilizations get built in a way. You know, you don't um, – civilizations definitely do not just get built by guys who are putting sticks together and like, what if we put these sticks over here? Sounds good. Let's do it. Let's get it. Let's go, fellas. <laughs> yeah. And civilizations aren't built, you know, just by like six women sitting over around a fire going, you see that seventh woman? Let's keep her out. <laughs> That's not how civilizations are built either. But I think when, you know, when like-minded men and women come together and, and their powers combine, that's when you start to say, you know, it would be cool if we had those guys build those sticks, bring those sticks over here, and then we wouldn't have to be sitting here in the rain. What about that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, go t- I'll go talk to them. And that's how you start to build anything. And I just, I, I guess I wish that was a more, it was more, f- not formal, but I just wish there was something in our society, at least the one that I grew up in, where that space was more delineated. And it wasn't, it wasn't just like, well, the girls are over here at the dance and the boys are over here at the dance. And if you want to walk across the empty dance floor and, you know, with everyone watching you and ask, Maisie glots if she wants to dance, you know, if you're bold, like go for it, but (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to keep my back to the wall here and just hope I don't get murdered. (laughs) Uh, and maybe, maybe a lot of the changes that have happened since I was in school have affected that. And, and people are, and people move more freely across the barriers, but I, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And, and, <clears throat> sexual politics right now are so uh, it, there's so much energy in it and so much there's so much anger being expressed and so much like frustration being vented and things are changing so fast it's really hard to to know what the state of the the, the ground is right now what the future holds yeah know? 
We would like to say thank you to Simple Contacts. This is a convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes. It's Vision Care Simplified. Here's how it works. You get to renew your prescription, right? You take a five-minute vision test from your phone or computer. This gets reviewed by a licensed doctor and you receive a renewed one-year prescription and you reorder your contacts. It's genius. Now, if you have an unexpired prescription, you just upload a photo of that to your doctor's, uh, with your doctor's information and you order the lenses. That's it. Super convenient because you can do this from anywhere in minutes. You don't have to go to the doctor's office. You don't have to go to a waiting room. And it's fast. The vision test, it's self-guided. It takes less than five minutes. Think how much time you're going to save compared to making an appointment, getting the eye doctor, taking time off of work or family. And it's reliable. This is designed by doctors and licensed ophthalmologists. They review every test carefully to make sure your eyes look healthy and your vision hasn't changed. And you get choice. You get all the brands of lenses you're familiar with. It's not just one generic brand. It's the ones that you like including options for astigmatism like I have, multifocal lenses, colored contacts, and more. Lots and lots and lots of great choices. And support, customer support, they want to make sure that you're 100% satisfied. They send you text updates on your order. You can ask questions. You can reorder via text anytime. The vision test, it's only 20 bucks. Compare that to an annual appointment with, without insurance can cost you over 200 bucks. The contact lens prices are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free. And best of all, we have a promotion for you guys. This is very cool. $30 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash roadwork. Again, simplecontacts.com and the offer code is roadwork and you will get $30 off. Go check it out. Oh, they want me to remind you this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. This is just for prescription stuff. So uh, be safe out there. Simplecontacts.com slash roadwork for 30 bucks off. But I don't think I have, I think, uh, obviously there are lots of things about my psychology that are very male. And I spend a lot of time collecting pocket knives. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're stereotypically male from a previous generation, many, several generations back. You know what? The stereotypical male, when people have that in their mind of what that is, you don't really fit into that on a lot of fronts. You're more like if, if we went back to the 1800s, speaking of Westerns, went back to that and said, like, what what's a typical man back then? I think you would fit in better with what that perspective or definition of a typical man would would be back then. Fur trappers. Huh. You know what I'm saying? You fit in more with the fur trappers than you do with like the guys who, you know, never miss, uh, never miss an NFL game. Those good old fur trappers. Yeah. I'm so glad that they're there in our imagination to, to um, give us something to, to romantically aspire to. Yeah. I think one one of the interesting things about watching old movies, oil rig men. No, God, I'm not one of those. No. It's, it sounds like now you're just uh, you're just reciting the lyrics of Highwaymen. <laughs> I was a dam builder <laughs> across the river, deep and wide. Um, well, I've been watching a lot of what you don't understand. I've been watching a lot of westerns. A I, lot. They're they're amazing. And my I, son uh, is into them now. He's ten. 
And Which ones are you watching? Like old classic yes, starting, Tom Mix I, movies? Yes. I yes, I started him back. Uh, the first one he saw was Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And okay. we're working our... He's 10? Yeah. All right. And working our way through a few dollars more. And I've, I mean, I've got a whole, got all of them. And so I watch them before I show them to him, you know, make sure that there's nothing that I, you know, I mean, or just be prepared to answer any questions, which he rarely, rarely has any questions. There's some sleazy subtext in the the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, all those, there's like, they're real sleazebags. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, But you know, I mean, I think he's, he's, mature enough to handle pretty much anything that would be in in these movies so far he's enjoys them and and he appreciates them more than i did when i was 10 cool and uh he he's loving it but this is like that he's like we're on like a western kick now so i've been compiling a, a list and uh and just getting them one by one as he watches them and it's uh it's it's i'm really excited about this chapter of his childhood that's fantastic. Yeah. I I support that, and I think that I think you should throw old war movies into it. What's a really what would do. be a good one to start with? Since you've been watching a lot of them recently, because mm-hmm. I'll tell They're, you what I'll do. Let me just say, I like war movies, but I like the older war movies better than the new ones because there's a point where with some of the newer ones where they're so realistic and so accurate that they just I I find I get very involved in them and i get very stressed out by them yeah and and i leave i'm like great now i'm super stressed and i don't i don't need that like you know the older ones there's a little bit of uh movie theatrics around them and i don't know why but you can you can decouple yourself from them more easily yeah they're not trying to make you feel like you're actually under enemy fire (laughs) which modern ones are right i mean yes that's the thing about Saving Private Ryan. You're meant to feel like your face is about to get blown off. Yes. And it's like, why would, why do I want that? Why do I want that? I think what's really curious about war movies and Westerns and a lot of classic movies is, is uh, some of the stuff that we're talking about, about um, male identity and female identity. Mm-hmm. Because in our contemporary world, we we flatter ourselves that we are, we have progressed so far from the stone age of the fifties and the sixties and the forties back when people, back when women were chattel slaves and men were these like macho animals. And we just have this very cartoony idea of the past of our recent past of the world of our parents and grandparents And we feel very, I mean, just listening to the way that our culture talks to itself about itself, we feel very smug and superior to our elders in terms of how woke we are and how unwoke they were. But of course, that's that's not true. Um, People in the 50s were very sensitive and smart and understood the world around them and were able to see through uh, societal architectures and were able to, I mean, were conscious of equality and inequality and were working hard on those ideas. I mean, the only reason that 
that someone in 2017 can be smug about those things is because the work that was being done by people before us, like we, you know, nobody in our modern world invented a fucking thing. It's all built on a foundation that was built by sensitive and smart, active, engaged people in our recent past. Right. And so when you, like when you watch a modern Western or a, um, a modern war film, the thing that sticks out to me is not just that the realism, quote unquote, of the battles is so amped up. But what, what makes them unrealistic to me now is that is this overlay of modern self-consciousness. Like if you watch Saving Private Ryan, the thing that sticks out is that all the protagonists are so uh, are so introspective and so much having this inner battle with themselves and everyone's like, oh, Tom Hanks has got this shake and he won't talk about where he's from and oh, isn't that fascinating? He's so deep. But in fact, that generation didn't, that wasn't the way they were mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those guys would have come out of a, of a awful bloody battle and been sitting around going like, Hey, here's your uncle, you know, like, uh, hand me that ace. Hey fellas. What, 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 what's the, the what story? do these things mean? <laughs> hand hand me that ace. <laughs> you know, like Kilroy was here. Like they did not. <laughs> <laughs> think about they did not sit around i mean and, you know sure after a battle everybody's shell-shocked and sitting there shivering and fucked up but if you came over and said like how's it going frank frank would be like just fine sarge even if even if he was shattered inside mm -hmm. because that was how we coped then and not just at war but like life was a lot harder for a lot of people and and my whole life with my dad my interaction with him uh, after I got to be a teenager was like, hey, stop using that mid-Atlantic accent. Stop telling me, you know, like, ah, put yourself up by your bootstraps there, matey. Like, knock it off. Like, let's get real. And my dad would, you know, my dad was no dummy. He would look at me and say, get real? Why don't you go get real, like, get real over there? We're as real as it gets right here. And what that means is, we don't sit around like, like, uh, sucking on a wet rag. And I was so modern and so like in his face about it. Like, why don't you get, why don't you like dig deep and find out what's motivating those feelings? And my dad would say, I know what's motivating those feelings. Like, why don't you figure out how to put two and two together? And and this was a this was a cultural war between us my whole life and one of the things that was so profound about watching him die was the whole two years that he sort of went gradually sort of went into the mist i was perched there saying you know, like, well, like, here we are. Like, this is the reckoning. Like, where are you? How are you going to fall on on these 
lifelong projects of figuring out how your resentment with your father like colored your decision making process as you were trying to take over the Washington State Democratic Party in the 60s. And my dad would say, what? Shut up. (laughs) And I would say, no, no, no. Like there was a moment there where let's like reconcile your feelings about your mother's like abandonment while she still was like a smothering presence. And my dad was just like, didn't, it's not that he didn't want to go there. It's that that was not the language of his, of, of his time, but also not the language in which his brain had built itself. Right. And I had what I now recognize is smugness that because that is the way our, my brain built itself, that it was superior to his, that I saw things more deeply, that I, I understood the unconscious mind and its effect on our decision-making in ways that he could only dream. But as he died, I realized that, these are just these are just systems that we're trying to employ in order to make sense out of out of an uncomprehendable uh, like plurality of inputs. Life is not as we the the world is not as we see it. Mm-hmm. Like the, the world is happening in multiple in seven dimensions at all times. And what you are taking in with your eyes and, and the small group of people that you have around you and the, the tiny sliver of information that you get from whatever source, the TV or the internet or your church or whatever, like none of it is comprehensive. It isn't the world. And it is, and the more you think it is the world, the more you're just it's just your ego playing out. The The more you think it's the world, the less you know. And for me to think that my take on it, my late 20th century idea of how important the unconscious was compared to his mid 20th century idea that in order to, um, in order to move the ball forward, we all had to pull together or however you would break these like these things down to one sentence compared to his his older kids the baby boomers whose whose governing principle was we need to smash conformity because that's the thing that keeps us from being free and all of these little thumbnail uh frameworks are just little like uh, they're, they're these tiny little prisms and they don't reflect anything really true outside of their own, uh, the truth of it, of its, of its own self, the idea's own self. And now uh, the, you know, now our, our language is that without equity, mm-hmm. without, e- without true, pure equality, we are all living in a, in a prison. Mm-hmm. And if you're aware of the prison or if you're not aware of the prison, it doesn't change the fact that you're in a prison. 
a prison of um, injustice. And that's no more or less true than than my dad's like, let's all pull together version of what we need and who we are and where we are. It is not necessarily an evolution of it. It's just an iteration of it. It's just another take. And there were lot, there were plenty of people with that take in 1940. It just wasn't the main take, but it's not like it wasn't happening. My dad had that take. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad was a social justice warrior, but in the language of the 1930s. And so when he finally was like dying, I started to see like, oh, he's, he is walking his talk right to the end. He's, there's no deathbed conversion. He's not like Jesus or, or, um, I forgive you dad or whatever it was that I was hoping for. Yeah. And it wasn't because he wasn't capable of it. It's because that's not his, that wasn't his truth. And in living his truth all the way, consistently all the way to the end, where the last thing he said to me was, fuck it. You know, like the last, literally the last words out of his mouth were like, God damn you, get out of my room. (laughs) Uh, And, and said with humor and said with the, uh, with panache. Yeah. And a feeling that from within his mind, Wherever that, whatever his, uh, whatever his consciousness was and his soul was, it still believed it was going to live forever Mm. and it still was undaunted. There wasn't whatever fear he had about going through the curtain was nothing compared to the confidence he had that, that, uh, on the other side, he was going to waltz in and say, who, where the hell's the maitre d? You know, and, <laughs> and, and I don't mean, I don't mean to make my dad sound like Rodney Dangerfield, but, but it was impressive and, and it, and it humbled me because, because it, it, um, it begged the question or it asked the question rather. It asked the question, what can I, am I going to do better? Like, is my brain science are my thought technologies going to take me to there and take me through that with more grace? Will I have left a, a better imprint or a, a a more lasting legacy Hmm. and are my peers doing a better job or are they doing or are they dismantling some of the things that were built